when they put Marco on to refute President Obama's speech. Do you remember that catastrophe? And he's like this, and we were, ah, ah, I need water, help me, I need water, help. And he's, this is on live television. This total choke artist. It's Rubio. Unbelievable. <laughs> Name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I'm joined by Kale Brooks, uh, who's at his producer this week, also by our YouTube channel manager, editor, and producer, uh, Kelly Carey. Uh, so uh, the uh, the voice you just heard, of course, uh, was uh, former President Donald Trump uh, talking about another friend of the show, uh, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, so I just <laughs> about uh about little marco in uh, in jacobin uh with uh, you could tell this is a really swinging for the fences uh controversial take it's called you shouldn't have to survive a terrorist attack uh to get debt relief and what it's about is the way that uh marco rubio has really been built up in a lot of uh, media certainly conservative media like fox news but even other kinds of mainstream media that have kind of credulously gone along with this uh, as being a face of a certain segment of the GOP's turn towards populism. Uh, and specifically, you think, okay, well, populism, if that just means that, you know, some notion of the people and, you know, the misunderstood common man or something has been counterposed to out-of-touch elites, then, yeah, okay, you could have a cultural populism that's very compatible with conservatism, uh, saying that you're waging culture war on behalf of middle America against Hollywood or, you know, uh, if you're in the 80s or, you know, woke elites, if you're now, you know, is, is uh, about as original in conservatism as claiming to love America and revere Jesus. But uh, specifically, they'll say it's an economic populist, you know, it's Republican economic populism. Uh, and as always, when I hear this, I really want to know what this means, because uh, Marco Rubio, like the rest of these ghouls, is against raising the minimum wage. Uh, he's against Medicare for all. Uh, not only is he against Medicare for all, but even the Affordable Care Act and the sort of modest incremental limitations on the ability of the health insurers to prey on all of us that were built into that uh, were too much for him. Uh, he was willing uh, famously in 2017 to uh, repeal Obamacare and replace it with nothing. Uh, so he has a position on this that's well to the right of Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or, you know, any of those comrades. Uh, and, you know, he's certainly opposed, he's, he's in, on record as opposing, in the same way he says he would never, never support single payer. He says he would never uh, support uh, uh, free, uh, free public higher education, uh, that, you know, that, that he would be against that. So you think, okay, well, what is this? Republican economic populists willing to actually do to help, you know, working class kids pay for college or to, you know, to pay off uh, the uh, the loans that, you know, they'd, they'd otherwise be struggling with for decades. Well, he did just introduce something, uh, but it's amazing. And and before I kick over to to Kelly and Kale on this, I, I, I want to take you on a quick trip down memory lane. So if you remember the 2020 election, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, I don't remember that, Ben. You don't remember that? 
No, okay. you might be too old for this. Okay. I'm too young for this. I remember okay, 2016 too well, so I just you just blocked out, out 2020 entirely because of 2016. Wake me up when it's over. All right. Well, anybody, anybody in the viewing audience uh, who who is enough of a relic to remember the 2020 election, uh, the student debt relief was a big issue there, and. Of course, Elizabeth Warren had a plan to eliminate um, vast amounts of student loan debt. Uh, you know, it was means tested. There were limitations, but she wanted to eliminate giant chunks of it. Bernie Sanders obviously wanted to go further and just abolish it entirely because, you know, higher education should be a public good, not a commodity. Uh, Kamala Harris had a different approach, uh, which is that her uh, her student loan debt uh, relief plan uh, was that you would get your up to $20,000 of your student loans repealed. So I think she said, if you were a Pell Grant recipient who started a successful business in a disadvantaged community for uh, at least five years, and I don't know, maybe there was something in there about how you had to successfully uh, solve a riddle involving a guard who always tells the truth and a guard who always lies. I don't, maybe that last part wasn't in there, but you uh, that, wore red shoes on the third Thursday of the month. Yeah, Pre but exactly. you had already have been doing that for right, right, for at least prior. the last five years that you have to have photographic evidence that you've been doing that right. pre-existing shoe conditions. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Whatever so, happened to her? But did that didn't really go anywhere, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did she did she know. amount to anything? Uh, I I don't know what she's doing now. Maybe I, maybe she's, she's a in police MSNBC woman. or something. Hmm. She became a policewoman in California. So she's okay. a beat cop. Yeah, Fair but enough. like a but like a community policewoman. So it's like it's okay. It's she woken, just gives okay? tickets. She just yeah. gives tickets. She's just citizens arresting people <laughs> just in San Francisco. <laughs> She's just scolding them, right, putting them on yeah. TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> She's the, the citizens arrest. She, she follows them around and tells them to do better. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, what, that's what she does. Uh, she that's was a job now. Yeah, that's cool. She's that's cool. First one to be hired. Good for her. I'm glad that she made something of herself. Uh, and, yes, and at, the, <laughs> at the time that this uh, that that she announced this this plan, a lot of people uh, had uh, had a lot of fun with this. Uh, so uh, there was uh, there was, for example, uh, I was I was like this uh, this tweet from uh, Peter Coffin, uh, and you'll be eligible to apply in person on the third Monday of the month if you stand on one foot while reciting lines to the 2000 Britney Spears hit "Lucky." The line is outdoors for dress, so uh, dress for inclement weather. Uh, Reasonable, and, yeah, yeah. And that was pretty. That was pretty typical of their reaction at the time, because this is such a ridiculous, like reductio ad absurdum of this kind of corporate-friendly democratic centrism that this would be the student debt relief plan. Well, Marco Rubio uh, has uh, has done uh, Kamala Harris one better. Uh, he just introduced legislation. Uh, this is an idea I guess he first had after the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016. Wanted to do something to help them with a um, even narrower class of recipients than Kamala's plan, uh, which is that uh, well he's not going to he's not going to forgive twenty thousand dollars of uh, your student loan debt, 
Uh, that would be ridiculous. Um, he's not actually going to forgive any of it, but he'll give you a year off of your payments uh, if you survive a terrorist attack. And it comes in the form of a coupon that expires after a certain uh, date. So you have to you have to renew it and you have to bring it in person uh, to the bank. That's the rule. Well, you certainly have to file something being like, yeah. I'm, I, mean, I assume so. They're not just going to like figure out who's who. You were in a terrorist attack. I told I told my dad that this is what we were talking about. And I, I was like, yeah, so Marco Rubio said blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Oh, I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that for everybody who's eligible. And I was like, right. I was like, it's it's free because it's not going to cover the non-federal loans. Like anything that's private, if you're in a terrorist attack, you're still going to have to pay for that. But like the federal stuff just gets put on hold. And my dad's like, I'll pay for it for everyone. And I was like, that's really generous. Well, this is, um, I mean, this is the thing with like means tested programs that there is always going to be an aspect of it that's fairly subjective that uh, it depends on it, it's different people uh, interpreting what it means. The person who is trying to receive that benefit or that uh, program, the people that are administering that program. Uh, so, you know, who classifies a terrorist attack? And uh, if you are, in, at the scene of the of the of the attack, does that count? Probably, but if you are nearby and you felt uh, you know harmed by it, that you had an emotional trauma by seeing something horrific happen, does that count? It's like the fact that like this is the problem with any means testing, and obviously you know this is you know this happens in a lot of other areas as well. But uh, to say um, you only get this thing if you uh, meet certain requirements. Uh, necessarily puts all of the burden on the right. recipients. Yeah, you have to prove that you deserve something, which is obviously, you know, as socialists, and I'm not holding Rubio to any socialist standards, but it's the complete opposite ethos of how we see the world where we say, no, you're a human being and you deserve certain rights. And it's actually going to just be so much easier in the long haul to uh, to guarantee these things and not have to figure out whether or not you are in fact the right thing or not that that gets this. Uh, it's just by virtue of you existing uh, that you uh, are guaranteed something. Yeah, I mean, I, I always liked uh, there was a old Chapo episode where um, I don't even remember the context, but uh, Amber had a really good line about how. Uh, one of the best things about going from being a liberal to being a socialist is you can stop morally means testing people in your head uh, mm. just to say uh, every bastard deserves better, uh, which, uh, you know, which, which I, which I like a lot, but of course, of course the point is here uh, that like right-wing populism is, is a sick joke. I mean, Marco, uh, Marco Rubio is one of the people who's constantly brought up as a supposed representative of it, along with, Josh Howley, who's no better, you know, Steve Bannon, who's no better, uh, and and none of these people. I mean, they're they're all like their their actual like policy preferences on all of this stuff are to the right of of like awful corporate Democrats. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I they say that they want the economy to get better, but I don't. I don't, nothing they do actually serves that purpose because it just, I mean, they're, they're whittling it. The economy has been 
you know, like the, the upper percentile has just been whittled away to like, you know, such a small um, amount of people that, you know, nothing you do. I mean, I, I would fall into, I'm sure, like a, a upper tiers of society and I'm broke. And every, every decision that I've made in the past, I don't want to say how many years because I'm old now, but um, has been determined by my student loans for just for grad school, just for grad school, because I got to go for basically close to free for undergrad because my mom worked at the, at the university. Um, and so that didn't, that was like paid for, but just for grad school at NYU, um, which was expensive. Um, and then, so my, my loans for that and, and health, healthcare. So all of my decisions for my adult life have been determined by those two things. And, you know, they haven't been very good decisions. <laughs> they haven't helped the economy. They've only hurt it. They haven't helped. They haven't helped me to like level up, which would then help the economy and like help the United States government by then being able to tax me more, you know, um, it, it, and this is happening, you know, all the way down, you know, to people, to the point of people being able to not feed themselves and then, you know, having to take, you know, which I have qualified at different times for, you know, social programs, which, you know, and, and so I have many, many people with, um, with uh, higher level degrees, which shouldn't, it shouldn't be a thing for anyone to have to apply for those programs. I guess that's why. No, it should. Socialists, but um, yeah, well, right. And of course, the problem is that if you do have to apply for it, I mean, one that it itself is a huge barrier. Lots of people won't, you know, because because they don't, uh, you know, they don't think they'll qualify, or they're just exhausted by the very thought of it, uh, or you know, they just don't want to fight about it, or they. Or have a, I mean, or you, you know, like for me, it's like. Well, I can get through the next however long by like stretching out my money because like there's no way that I can be like the, uh, one of the people that needs it the, the most. And if I can just get to the next point of like wh where I make more money, like in like gigging, you know, mm -hmm. then I can, you know, like I can like make it, you know, by doing that or like by like moving this loan until like this point and then, you know, kind of like making it until like the like 80th day on this loan so that they don't like turn anything in and then like paying that and then like doing this and like, you know, just tomfoolery with um, my life. Yeah, uh, and of course you have the opposite problem too, that they have uh, like the, probably the bigger problem, uh, people who, uh, who don't, um, who either might qualify, but you know, don't think that, okay, uh, they don't think of themselves as people who need it or people who, do, who don't qualify because if that arbitrariness that Kale is talking about that, of yeah. you know, of course that anybody who's like, you're going to have a line, anybody who's an inch above the line uh, has a built-in incentive to resent, you know, people who are below the line. Whereas if you have universal social programs, uh, anybody up until the point where like, you know, you're hurt more by the taxes to pay for them. But like up until then, right. everybody uh, has, skid in the game you know everybody right. has a, uh, has a people, reason i think people might 
I think that some people that are resenting other people might actually be might actually qualify um, for a lot. No, of I'm, 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 I'm sure right. that that's true in some cases. Although also there are people who are going to resent people who. You know, there are people who don't think they qualify or are going to resent people who actually do qualify. There are people who who Won't really don't it. qualify yeah. who are going to resent people who do. Uh, the whole thing is counter-solidaristic yeah. at every level, which makes it make perfect sense uh, that, you know, that, that centrists and, you know, and, and the right love, uh, you know, love means testing since uh, since it makes uh, it makes all these programs much more politically vulnerable. Uh, Kale, do you have a final thought? Right. Well, no, I mean, basically what, what you just said, I mean, that's the that's the whole thing that, in, you know, none of us obviously, well, I, I don't want to say obviously, but none of us want to repeal uh, the existing means testing programs or means tested programs, because obviously people are in horrible, dire straits right now. And they, you know, and they, many people rely on these things. But I think it is, uh, you know, it's definitely true that means testing, means tested programs uh, undermine the welfare state. They undermine the uh, solidaristic ethos that is necessary for something like social democracy. That uh, for this reason, that you know, people feel humiliated. That they they feel like, oh, I have to now uh, go into this program and people judge me when I'm in line, you know, using like an EBT card or something. Uh, and we want to build a society where we say, no, it's like. Sometimes these are, you know, these are, uh, you know, accidents of birth that people end up in in bad situations, uh, or sometimes it's social phenomena where, you know, people, you know, over the course of, you know, growing up and being in these situations, they, you know, they get the short end of the stick. They, you know, sometimes it's bad luck. A lot of times it's just, you know, they are stuck in a district that has horrible funding with poor jobs, uh, bad nutrition, all these things, and we want to say it's not your fault that we actually have the means, like the, the economic, the resources, we have the means to take care of one another and that we want to be looking out for one another so that the people that are, uh, that maybe don't have as much to contribute for whatever reason, they're in a, in a worse situation, they're looked after because we actually put human value, human life over and above uh, market competition, over profitability, uh, over, um, you know, the ethos of, of what capitalism is. And and so that's why you'll see liberals and conservatives always say, like Ben saying, you know, means testing pro means, I can't I keep doing this, means tested programs uh, are uh, not, they're typically cheaper, but they're also a means of, uh, of undermining, like basically building working class power. Yeah. Also, anyone who thinks that people who are using them should be embarrassed, should be embarrassed of themselves. So. Yeah, well, amen to that. Uh, speaking of which, uh, so the, uh, the the king, of course, of uh, of demonizing people who use uh, means-tested social programs is uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, we, uh, so this week for uh, for patrons, recorded an interview with, uh, with Rick Perlstein, who's the author most recently of Reaganland. He's written a series of books on the history of conservatism. Uh, we are gonna uh, show a short preview of that now, but uh, thanks you so much, guys. Thank you, we'll be, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Kelly will be back next week. All right, sounds good. But one of the things that, that I got out of, I think the uh, beginning of Reaganland, uh, that's that's sort of a surprising part of this story is that uh, is that Reagan made a uh, you know a, a 
decision to essentially throw Ford under the bus in the yeah. uh, in the general election. He didn't really campaign for him. That's right. So he kind of begins the book, you know, um, with Gerald Ford having just lost, and a lot of people with very sound reasoning uh, blaming him personally for Jimmy Carter being president. And uh, it begins with a note of self-pity. The first sentence, I think, is something like Ronald Reagan insisted it wasn't his fault. And that was one of the kind of qualities of Ronald Reagan that both in this book and my previous book, Invisible Bridge, that self-pity that I think was a big part of his makeup that no one really talks about. You know, they talk about his optimism. They talk about his, you know, anger at, you know, kind of all sorts of uh, insurgencies. But um, he could be really, he could be quite the whiner. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he had his own little explanation for why Gerald Ford lost and uh, it, it didn't include him. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, did, what's your read on that? I mean, did he think that, uh, like, was this actually cynical on the level of thinking that uh, that if, you know, uh, that, you know, Ford losing would mean that he'd be less able to to have right. kind of a designated... So, I you mean, know, that's where you get into the that remarkable contraption, the mind of Ronald Reagan, in which, you know, on the level of consciousness, there's just, I, I'm completely convinced there's no cynicism whatsoever, you know, his ability to kind of turn all sorts of negative emotions that other people would recognize, whether they're, you know, chaos or um, failure into, you know, some sort of his, I say at some point in, in the book that his strongest psychological drive was a belief in his own innocence, right? right. Uh, so, um, yes, I think what you're referring to is if, you know, Ronald Reagan wants to be president and comes in second place in the nomination in 1976, it's a pretty good long-term play for the guy who beats him to lose, and then he becomes the heir apparent for the nomination. And since kind of that's exactly what's happened, you know, happens, I'm, you know, most normal political analysts, actors, politicians would just presume that this was what he had in mind. And I think to say that he had it in mind is to, to say that he had it in mind on some part of his subconscious, you know, mm -hmm. certainly, you know. Yeah, so just as a uh, reminder uh, to that's going to drop for patrons on uh, on Thursday. Really excited about this one. We've talked about uh, Rick Perlstein uh, so many times on uh, on the show that actually getting to talk to him about these books and the larger stories telling about the history of conservatism and, and uh, how it relates to contemporary politics is really exciting. So to get that episode on Thursday, every other patron episode on Thursday, as well as, of course, the post games after the main show on Monday night and uh, the uh, monthly uh, Sopranos episodes with Nando and Big Waz and Mike Racine and a lot else, go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. So uh, I did, we are going to be joined in uh, just a few minutes uh, by our, our good friend and comrade Luke Savage. Uh, but uh, there is, there is one thing that uh, snagged my attention this week that, uh, that I did want to talk about uh, before, uh, before Luke comes on. This is uh, this is not a uh, an article in you know Jacobin or Current Affairs or anywhere like uh, like that. Uh, it is a uh, an article that uh, that is that is uh, is is published in 
in you know right wing magazine and reason you know which is the reason I think uh, what that it would be not on the uh, the radar of a lot of people on uh, on the left but I think precisely for that reason I think it's it's worth kind of busting out of the bubble and taking a look at this for a moment. Uh, okay. yeah, re- reason is basically Jacobin's evil twin. That's about right. Yeah, we were separated at birth and, uh, you know, they have yeah, a, yeah, a it's very the, popular uh, YouTube channel and we will catch up with them, but you got to hit like and subscribe to this and all the other stuff we do. But yeah, uh, here's right. the here's the piece. Uh, a composer condemned arson. Now no one will hire him. Yeah, so uh, this is... I do like that analogy, by the way. That like it's like the uh, the Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Horror, yeah. uh, where Bart has the uh, evil twin who's uh, who's kept in the attic and fed fish heads. Uh, so we don't quite do that with the uh, the Reason staff at the Jacobin office, but um, you know, there's always next year. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but what the article uh, is uh, is about. Uh, is a composer uh, named uh, Daniel uh, Daniel Elder, uh, who is um, he's um, uh, he lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, last uh, last summer, uh, the during the unprecedented wave of unrest following the police murder of George Floyd, uh, the uh, somebody uh, burned down uh, the. Uh, courthouse uh, in uh, in Nashville, uh, and uh, and so he posted something about it on uh, on on Instagram. Uh, he said, "Enjoy burning it all down, you well-intentioned blind people." So it's a sort of anodyne statement of kind of um, you know milk toast sort of establishment, but also like a sentiment lots of people with lots of politics might have uh, that you know that it's it's of like uh, discomfort uh, with, uh, you know, with, 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 with arson uh, with, you know, which is, which is not, um, I mean, I think like, honestly, I think like if Bayer Rustin had had Instagram, he might've posted that. Like it's, it's not a, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. Tell you. The it's Rustin that. Instagram posts. <laughs> Those would have been wild. <laughs> they would have, uh, but you know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, he's not making any sort of comment about black lives matter or the protests more generally, uh, or anything like that. He's very specifically commenting uh, on the arson and, you know, whatever you think about that. I mean, my hot take would be that I don't like, you know, shed a lot of tears of the uh, birdie out of a courthouse. Uh, but also I think that politically it's probably a counterproductive thing to do. Uh, but whatever you, uh, whatever you think about that, you know, there's no, there's no larger political statement about, you know, about Black Lives Matter being bad or police violence being good or, you know, anything like that. Right. It's, it's just purely uh, it's an expression of distress at the uh, courthouse uh, being, uh, being burned down. Uh, and the, uh, and the reaction uh, to this uh, was, uh, was extreme. Uh, so, uh, you know, his critics were spamming his Facebook and YouTube pages with comments accusing him of being a racist and a white supremacist piece of garbage. Uh, he has um, uh, the you know, lots of quotes from emails from saying people saying they'll never listen to his stuff again. That you know somebody's a choir director and department head for the music department for a private school in Ohio, informing him that 
that the school will not be programming his music anymore. And uh, people recommended that he read Robin DiAngelo's uh, White uh, White Fragility. Uh, that was me. I, I'm going to be honest. That was, that was you. Okay. <laughs> I, it, was a, it was a good read. I don't know. Didn't everyone read it last summer? Wasn't that the point of yeah. like well, all the protests so. was that we all end up reading Robin DiAngelo's terrible yeah, no, book? I mean, that, is, that is the best possible outcome of those, of those protests, that the way that policing works stays exactly the same, but one white Italian woman who does like corporate HR stuff gets really rich. Um, so uh, more probably more seriously, uh, there's it guarded the attention of GIA publications as in the world of choral music. GIA is not merely a publisher, it is the major publisher of religious content thanks to its association with the post-Vatican II Roman Catholic Church. Uh, GIA, uh, the president and the media editor contacted the elder about posting an apology. They wrote one up for him uh, to, to just sign, which says, over the weekend, I made a post on my social media accounts that was insensitive and wrongly worded. I deeply apologize for the anger, offense, and harm this post caused. While this offense was not intended, it is what was created. For this, I'm truly sorry. There's no justification that I can offer for my post. So rather than try to offer an excuse for what was done, I can offer a promise for what I will do going forward. I commit to making amends and to dialogue. I commit to continue educating myself about privilege and bias. I commit to seeking an understanding of the experience of others, especially the black community. I know that working for justice requires that we each first act justly. My work begins now. And he said, what? No, I'm not going to sign that. Uh, which you know, is the correct reaction on multiple levels. I mean, I think for one thing, it just demeans the very idea of an apology that you have a multi-paragraph groveling apology written for you by a corporation uh, for you to put your, your signature on. Uh, and the uh, the consequence of uh, consequences of this for, for his career, for working since then were pretty dire. But the thing I particularly wanted to call people's attention to and why I think it's it's worth you know, again, this is not going to be on most people's radar uh, in in our world because where it's published uh, is what came at the uh, at the very end. Uh, that um, the last uh, the last couple of paragraphs, because I think there are two points to be made about this. Right, uh, one just on a human level, this is a shitty way to treat people and and to uh, and to interact with people. Uh, that this this sort of mass denunciation and you know excommunication and professional consequences for uh, saying something mild that hit people the wrong way. Uh, but also, I think there's a political strategic issue here, which was brought out by the last two paragraphs of the Reason article. I'm just going to read them here. Nevertheless, the experience has positively impacted Elder in one way, he tells me. It's made him less ideologically narrow-minded. Because I was exiled, he says, I started listening to voices on the right and the center, especially these classical liberals who were exiled from the leftist movement. Uh, he says, the strange silver lining is that shook me out of my prejudices a little bit, which... I think is depressing on two levels. One, that he's probably going to become a much more annoying person now, but two, uh, that uh, he's reading, he's reading reason now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and uh, two, that uh, he's, this is something that I think a lot of leftists read that and draw exactly the wrong conclusion. You know, the conclusion mm -hmm. that draws, Oh, therefore it's just fine. What happened to him? Uh, when I think the actual conclusion is the one that's suggested in chapter four of Michael Brooks's book, uh, Against the Web, uh, where he talks about uh, the, uh, the Weinsteins, uh, Brett and Eric, and, uh, and, and Brett Weinstein's uh, experience at, uh, at, at Evergreen College, uh, which is a, um, 
a kind of foundational thing uh, for the so-called intellectual dark web. Uh, and here we go. Uh, Michael Wright's entire careers are built on this nonsense. We wouldn't have ever heard of Brett Weinstein if not for what happened at Evergreen College. Far too much ink and podcast hours have been spent laboriously re-reviewing his version of the Evergreen drama uh, without attempting to relitigate that he said, she said, um, I think um, Doug was correct to ask whether an increasingly corporatized administration was playing divide and conquer by deflecting student anger away from the real decision makers and onto a professor who was arrogant and tone deaf, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the way the activists turned their attention to this ridiculous and thoroughly unimpressive person who uh, turned him into a cause celeb for the right. Uh, whatever else is true about this, what matters most is that Brad and his brother Eric are now here, are here with us now, uh, publishing the right-wing uh, classical liberal problem of the IDW. In other words, we would never have to hear from these people if not for this misguided form of student activism at Evergreen State. And there is a broader point here, which is that when you um, engage in mass denunciations and excommunications and what are creepily referred to as consequences and accountability over some fairly inconsequential nonsense, one of the entirely predictable consequences of this is that you push the people who are targeted by this and anybody who cares about them to the right. Because if... Um, if everybody who has good, you know, otherwise good politics isn't taking what happened to them seriously, is dismissing it, is making excuses for it, uh, you're, they're certainly not going to listen to them. Uh, and it's also, I think, just human nature that if you, the people that you used to hang out with won't hang out with you anymore, you will find somebody who will. And over time, bit by bit, uh, you are going to be influenced by the way they see the world. If you don't want that to happen, that in itself is a reason not to act like this. Most people hate this neo-Puritanism, like this, you have to, you know, to confess to being a bad person because you uh, fell into the traps that were laid all around you of, you know, post your feelings on social media, and then it's going to be taken from you and uh, and used against you. And then, you know, a company is going to <laughs> to write up, you know, your apology and, and you know, you're going to do better. Um, again, it's humiliating. And most people rightfully so, say, this is bullshit. I don't want to deal with this. Um, and the problem, of course, is that, you know, there's cancel culture is obviously, you know, it's something that um, it's a, you know, it's one of these terms that has somewhat lost some of its meaning because of how often it's used. But of course, it's something that exists across the political spectrum. It doesn't have a political ideology attached to it. But like Ben saying, so much of it is associated with the uh, with the academy, and the academy is associated with the left wrongfully because there are no leftists in, in like in American universities. Like there's like maybe three, and they're usually on these YouTube shows. <laughs> but like everyone else is like a blood sucking vampire that just wants to like take their lane in in like the thought world and say this is my subject and no one else can touch it. And if you, if you get into my territory, I'm going to, you know, attack you and, and take you down. And, and that kind of like that mode of dealing with intellectual subjects, that way of dealing with people who disagree with you uh, is unfortunately, uh, it might be an overstatement to say pervasive on the left, but it's certainly a real thing on the left. And it's a problem that yeah, it's, uh, the it's, left very, it's, it's very common on the left and way too many leftists uh, mistake it for politics. Right. Yeah, that they don't see it. We're the minority 
and we have to get people to come to us because if it's just us, if we keep closing ranks, we will achieve nothing and you will feel good for a couple months. And then two years from now, you're going to move on because you're going to join some NGO or some shit and, uh, and you will forget about this, this past. And so if you are serious about this project, if you actually believe that we should be decommodifying key aspects of, of society and of our lives, uh, and that we should expand democracy into the workplace, that we should have greater political rights, all these things, you have to reject this shit. This like what like Cedric Johnson refers to as like militant liberalism, because people fucking hate it. And it's an it's anathema. What's the word? It's it's completely. It's, yeah, it's completely opposed to to like the actual principles of the left of like of actually, you know, uh, seeing people as, as having value and of, um, you know, and that people shouldn't be arbitrarily fired for having bad thoughts. Everyone has bad thoughts. Literally everyone has bad thoughts. Like you should not be fired for a certain set of bad thoughts, like exclusively. Like, no, exactly, exactly. And, and, I, and, and, um, not for nothing on slightly off topic, but I do completely agree about academia. The, uh, uh, that, that is, um, the 2020 election. One of the, uh, certainly the, the lasting consequences of my life was to, uh, was to make me hate most people who, uh, who did what I did for a living, uh, since, uh, since they were all the kind of annoying freaks who, uh, uh, preferred Warren to Sanders because she, uh, you know, because, because she did, uh, she signaled, uh, about, you know, as, as somebody who, who did her homework and she referred to her medium posts as plans and, uh, and all that shit, just completely insufferable. Uh, but bring on somebody who is uh, is neither insufferable nor a vampire. Uh, <laughs> our uh, friend and comrade, Jackman staff writer, Luke Savage. How you doing, Luke? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, I, yeah, I am. I am good. Uh, and uh, and we we did get a, uh, a a rare piece of of good news for uh, for what it's worth uh, legislatively. That the uh, authorization for uh, the Iraq War uh, 18 years ago was finally repealed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um, so last week there was this House vote um, margin of uh, 268 to 161. So this is actually bipartisan. I believe 49 uh, 49 Republican uh, representatives voted for it. Um, and yeah, I mean, people may not actually have realized it. So this was this was co-sponsored by. Uh, by uh, by Barbara Lee, or this was uh, the the initiative was led by Barbara Lee. Um, people may not have realized, as I suspect many people didn't, that this was still on the books. Um, you know, uh, this authorization. I believe the authorization for the first uh, Gulf War is also uh, still on the books, um, as is the very broad um, authorization after uh, after nine uh, eleven, the uh, one passed on uh, September fourteenth, two thousand and one. Um, and I mean, uh, you know, th that's important to note because I think, you know, what could be more symbolic of the sort of the way militarism is just sort of an ambient haze in American culture and American politics. Um, I can't think of anything that epitomizes that or embodies that uh, better than, you know, these authorizations for for war um, still being on the books, um, you know, years after the, yeah, the decades, you know, decades, decades after. after the yeah, right. Um, but, um, you know, there have actually, I mean, there are actually real consequences to this. Um, Donald Trump, uh, for example, he invoked the 2002 Iraq war authorization when he assassinated, uh, Soleimani. So, 
you know, there are legal consequences to this stuff as well. It's not just symbolic or abstract. Yeah. Uh, so you wrote a article in, uh, in Jacobin, uh, called uh, Barbara Lee was right about the uh, the war on terror. It says in the deck there, twenty years ago, Barbara Lee cast the uh, lone vote against the authorization uh, for use of military force, the blank check for endless war that came immediately uh, after nine eleven. Uh, Kale, do we have the uh, do we have the clip from uh, from from Barbara Lee's speech uh, explaining her her no vote in uh, for the authorization of the use of military force? September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. Now this resolution will pass, although we all know that the president can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote. But I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful, yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time. Yeah. So, uh, how was that? Uh, how was that speech re- and her that vote received at the time? I mean, at the time, you know, I mean, Barbara Lee got a ton of threats. She had to, uh, you know, she had to walk around with uh, with bodyguards for time uh, as well. I mean, um, I mean, I'm sure many people watching remember what the atmosphere was like. Um, I mean, this is this is three days after 9-11. So I think there were a few things in the air. I think in general, the popular mood was uh, understandably one of kind of trauma and fear and, and anxiety and, and, and confusion. But I think even at this early stage, um, you know, just a few days after the attacks, I mean, there was a consensus forming uh, that, you know, America was going to attack something or someone or many or many someone's um you know uh you know it hadn't kind of uh you know uh, hadn't fully articulated itself just how broad um you know this campaign was going to be um but i mean there were many people who uh, in this atmosphere of fear and anxiety were actually quite excited um they thought you know well with the cold war over um you know, we don't have an any enemy anymore. And so there's no kind of great ideological nemesis to, you know, marshal our, uh, ourselves around and nine 11 for the, you know, neocons in particular changed that equation. So I think, um, in that atmosphere, um, just, you know, so soon after the attacks, uh, what Barbara Lee did has got to count as one of the most courageous votes, um, you know, ever, ever cast in the, in the history of the house of representatives, um, you know, later that same day, um, you know, it would, uh, this, uh, 
this this uh, authorization, uh, which whose language was incredibly broad, um, it would be passed in the Senate 98 to zero. So Barbara Lee is the sole lawmaker who dissented from this, not even Bernie Sanders, who was in the House at the time, voted against this. And, you know, I think uh, to give Lee even more credit, it's important to note that, you know, she was not, um, you know, that the clip that you played is is the kind of the most famous one, rightly so, because she delivered it on the floor of the House. But um, some weeks later, I think it was on uh, September the 23rd of 2001, she wrote an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, and she's very specific about her reasons for opposing, uh, you know, for opposing that uh, that resolution. Um, she said very clearly it was a blank check to the president to attack anyone involved in the September 11th uh, events anywhere in any country with regard without regard to our nation's long term foreign policy, economic, national security interests. And without time limit, in granting those overly broad powers, Congress failed its responsibility to understand the dimensions of its declaration. Um, and then, you know, she goes on to uh, to say much the same, and she warns about the uh, forthcoming loss of, of human life, particularly civilian life in the countries America was going to bomb. So every part of this assessment has been borne out. Um, and I think, you know, the ar- you know Lee's arguments, if anything, have only been uh, affirmed more and more strongly. Uh, every president since, um, I guess, except for Biden, hasn't yet had the chance to do this, um, has has uh, referred to um, this uh, authorization of 2001. Um, during the Obama uh, presidency, um, you know, this was used as justification for, um, you know, military engagements in Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, Iraq, Syria, Libya. I mean, um, Essentially, if you can make the case, even if it's an incredibly nebulous one, that um, you know uh, a country that that America wants to bomb at a given moment can be associated with the broad idea of terror, which was always a deliberately vague, um, you know, a deliberately vague idea. Um, you know, I mean, essentially, Barbara Lee. I mean, Barbara Lee is right. It was a complete, a completely a blank check. It was a carte blanche. You can. Um, I mean, you can essentially wage un- a war that that is, um, you know, has has very arbitrary legal grounds, uh, very very broad, infinitely broad uh, justification, and you know, Congress is already, you know, Congress has already signed off on it. You don't even have to go through that, um, uh, you know, that that check, uh, which is, you know, one of, I mean, should be one of the most basic checks um, in a representative democracy, as 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 I think most people would understood the concept. That that just uh, that just disappears. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Barbara Lee was right uh, 20 years ago and, um, you know, she's, uh, she's only more right today. Yeah. And I mean, it, like really just to underline like how remarkable this, this vote was, um, you know, as you say, even Bernie didn't vote against this thing. Uh, even Dennis Kucinich, uh, didn't, yeah. uh, didn't vote against it on the uh on the republican side like uh bob barr who's since been associated with the libertarian party and has often taken anti-war positions he voted for you know uh, he didn't vote against the authorization for the use of military force I mean, nobody voted against this thing at the time yeah, i i assume ron paul voted for it as well no that's true that's a good point yeah, yeah. ron paul was in yeah. there too so yeah ron paul would have uh, would have voted for it too um you know if he if he'd voted against it uh, I am absolutely certain that that would have been the, you know, something that was brought up in 2008 and uh, 2012. Nobody voted against this thing, but not only did Lee cast the right vote, but I mean, her, her, her explanation was 
uh, depressingly spot on that this 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 is a a blank check for war that could just last forever and ever and ever. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, it's worth it's worth noting. I mean, this is good news. Um, you know, the 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 uh, you know authorization for use of military force of two thousand one that's still on the books. Um, right. Uh, you know, that that hasn't been touched yet, although there does seem like there's an increasing appetite um, for it to at least be changed, if not repealed. Um, the Iraq uh, uh, Iraq resolution of 2002 passed the following year. Um, you know, that's now that repeals made it through the House. I think it's uh, prospects in the Senate. I'm, I've been unable to kind of get a clear sense of what those are. Um, but, you know, uh, Chuck Schumer backs it and uh Joe Biden backs it as well. So it may be that it actually, um, that that repeal uh, actually happens. Uh, who knows? Uh, I think, um, you know, it's it's overused uh, when people say there's a bipartisan appetite for things. I think sometimes that's, um, I, I think sometimes uh, that's a little too generous or overly uh, optimistic. In this case, I think um, there might actually be some Republican votes for some of this stuff, at least. Nice. All right, you know, the, you these, these wars, uh, these wars have never been popular. They weren't popular shortly after they were launched and, uh, and they, and they still aren't today. Yeah. Right. Like at the, I mean, certainly in, in, uh, certainly in the fall of 2001, the idea that we were going to, you know, we were going to go after the bad people and, you know, and, and, and kick some ass was very popular and, you know, and, and there was a point in, uh, you know, late 2002, early 2003, you know, going to war in Iraq was relatively popular, although also for an American war that had, you know, was just starting, like it wasn't that popular. But uh, but certainly since uh, since they really got going, I mean, they've, they've been wildly unpopular. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Thanks so much, brother. Cheers. All right. That was uh, that was uh, Jacobin staff writer uh, Luke Savage. I should uh, should check out uh, that uh, that article, uh, which uh, which again uh, the uh, article is Barbara Lee was right about the war on terror and the rest of uh, of Luke's stuff uh, consistently great, uh, but uh, now I'm going to uh, bring on uh, Victor Brazone, uh, who uh, real heads will know was uh, was was on the channel once for a Sunday night uh, debate breakdown. Uh, his first uh, his his first time uh, on the uh, on the main show, uh, but uh, we'll say that uh, even even people who have the misfortune to uh, not know uh, Victor, uh, if you uh, if you watch this at all, you probably know Matt McManus. Uh, since since uh, he's um, you know he's like the uh, I don't even remember what character well you know what who it was on The Simpsons who's on Kent Brockman and she says I brought my own mic you know that was the uh, you know that's 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 bad on this show uh, and uh, and and Victor and and Matt you know are both hosts of uh, the uh, Plastic Pills podcast really interesting uh, you know philosophical uh, podcast uh, and uh, Victor is also. Um, the article author, this is the main thing we're going to talk about now, of a essay in a, uh, in a book uh, edited by Matt. I also, I also have an essay in it called uh, Liberalism and Socialism, uh, Mortal Enemies or Embittered uh, Kin. Uh, I, I don't actually remember. Do you, do you remember, Victor, when that's officially coming out? I believe it is uh, late September. I don't remember the exact date. Maybe the 24th. Okay. Yep. That sounds right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, pre 
pre-order that or you know it, it's a it's academic publishing so it's not cheap but you know at least yeah. get your library to order it uh, sometimes palgrave has these great sales like i feel like at christmas once all their books were 80 percent off so maybe watch out for from one of those times yeah, fair enough uh, so um so yeah, last uh, last time I believe I uh, I spoke to uh, to Victor, uh, we were uh, speaking ill of a uh, of of another author who's who's in this uh, this collection, yeah. uh, the uh, the libertarian philosopher uh, Jason Brennan. Uh, so you can you can find that again. That's Plastic Pills is the uh, the name of the podcast. Uh, you can you can find that. I thought that yeah. might actually be an interesting entry into what you're talking about here because the you know, the title of the essay collection, of course, is uh, about liberalism and socialism. And that word liberalism means very different things in very in different uh, contexts. Right. So there's there's liberalism as a uh, position on the uh, on the political spectrum, you know, to uh, the left of conservatism, but to the right of social democracy. Um and yeah, that one's that one maybe is a moral enemy, but the uh, but uh, but there's also liberalism as in caring about so-called liberal rights, free speech, free association, freedom of religion, all you know, uh, maybe procedural political rights, all that stuff, uh, which many socialists like Marx and Engels, Rosa Luxemburg, you know, uh, Michael Harrington, you know, have uh, have thought were actually like crucially important, you know, for for any kind of socialist project. Uh, and then there's also uh, philosophical liberalism, which is which is certainly linked to uh, to the second one, uh, but maybe has something to do with um, you know with uh, seeing everybody as having whatever rights you think everybody has. Maybe everybody everybody innately has the same package of rights. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, Nobody, sh you know, nobody should have different political rights and obligations because of their, you know, their race or, you know, whether they're born into the peasant caste or the Lord caste or, you know, or, or, or anything like that. Right. So, um, and, and so like Jason is, is in the anthology to, uh, to be, to be the person who says, uh, uh, mortal enemies. For, uh, for for those the second two uh, those second two kinds of uh, of liberalism because he thinks that uh, you know because because he thinks that like the uh, the way you know the the kinds of liberalism that are important and, and and good you know he's a he's a libertarian you know he thinks that those those are incompatible uh, with um, you know with socialism uh, you know without recapping that episode I'll just say as a, as a telling detail. That uh, we were so for the episode, we uh, we we read his his book, which uh, what, what's it called? It's like libertarianism. It's everything you wanted to know, which is part of a bigger Oxford series. There's like a bunch of topics, and one of them was libertarianism, which Jason Brennan wrote. Yeah, and so in that book, he has this this phrase that he uses several times uh, about how uh, libertarians don't want to treat uh, you know fellow citizens like, and there's some like. There's you know, like three items on the list. It's like children or servants or, you know, slaves or so, you know, something like that. Right. They, mm -hmm. you know, don't want to treat people like children or servants or slaves. And like the thing that kept hitting me as I was writing that is, is you, you're defending capitalism. Like you literally want some people to be servants. Right. I mean, yeah, that's, right, that's, right. You know, like, like you, like presumably you think that's a job that should exist and there should be people, you know, who, uh, who have it, uh, that, you know, that there, there could be, you know, some people are hiring other people as, uh, as servants. 
Um, but uh, but you're somebody who who thinks uh, embittered kin. You think that you you know you you think that the the sort of best uh, that there are certain kinds of liberal values that are that that are uh, that are simpatico uh, with socialism. Uh, me that I think that are or aren't. They, well, you think you think there are, right? I mean, that's yeah, of course. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I definitely think that there's overlap. I'm pretty close to to Matt and McManus on this. I think uh, that, that there's there's quite a lot of overlap, and I think the normative core, uh, you know, of uh, of certain kinds of emancipatory values are crucial in both socialism and liberalism. So I kind of want to see. Um, and I also just think strategically from a leftist perspective, almost more practical perspective that like it's, it can be damaging to, 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 to overemphasize the distinction, I suppose. Uh, like, I think it can have a sort of damaging effect on what we're trying to do here on the left, I think. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I see people, I see people on the left who will say like, Oh, you know, we shouldn't even talk about freedom. We should just talk about equality. Maybe, uh, we should, um, and then they'll like really dismiss like, you know, like there's a certain kind of like online leftist to, you know, for who like liberalism always has bourgeois before it. Right. You know, that's yeah. like the, uh, uh, that because there are uh, right-wing liberals, you know, libertarians and, you know, people like that who, uh, who will, who think that, um, who think that like all that like caring about liberal rights, that like capitalist property rights are, a, are an indissoluble package deal. Uh, with that, and there are people who react to that not by saying no, they're not. Uh, in, in fact, we can have more meaningful versions of those things uh, without, you know, if we don't respect capitalist property rights, because you know, like, yeah, right now it's everybody, you know, you can't be arrested for uh, for having a certain opinion, but you know, you can certainly be fired, and you have a massive class of the population that uh, has to spend all their time worrying that they'll say or do something their boss won't like, uh, right. and you and you have another class of the population that can like buy tv stations right. uh you know so you're gonna have much more meaningful free speech for example under under those circumstances but instead of saying that there's a certain kind of leftist who wants to say um oh no these are this is uh like you know caring about any of that stuff that's like you know that's that's like insufficiently socialist or something which yeah yeah <clears throat> totally. Um, one time Matt and I actually went on this podcast that's become kind of popular of the Vanguard. I don't know if you've heard of those guys, Gavin and Zach. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Nice, nice guys. You might've actually gone on their podcast once. I think I, I think I did to talk about the new book. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, Matt and I were, were tr kind of tr talking about similar themes right now, but how maybe there's some overlap between liberalism and also just talking about the value of strategic um, incrementalism in certain points. And it was just funny to see the reaction in their, in their audience, right? Like they were immediately alarm bells were going off. They're like, Oh, these guys are centrist libs, you know, uh, yeah, 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 get yeah, them yeah. out of here. Like, and then as soon as we were gone, they're like, thank God those centrist libs are, are gone. Like pretty typical on the online left. Unfortunately, more typical than I would hope it, it would be. Yeah. Right. Which, which is, is certainly, I mean, as as you kind of indicated, I mean, if nothing else is a matter of practical politics, is insane because, uh, I mean, if you have like you have forms of of authoritarian state socialism that took hold in, um, you know, in countries where you never had political democracy in the the first place, right? I mean, like the only, I guess, really the only exception that I can think of at all is like, okay, East Germany you know, uh, was, you know, before the Nazis, there's the Weimar Republic, but, you know, also, you know, in the immediate 
uh, in the immediate time before the DDR was formed, you know, was, was, was certainly not a democracy. And, and most of the rest of these places, you never had democracy. And so under those circumstances, sure, saying like, hey, you can have, instead of having an authoritarian dictatorship that serves the interests of capital, you can have an authoritarian dictatorship that'll, you know, redistribute wealth and, and meet people's needs. I mean, you know, that sales pitch might, you know, like, win a lot of people over. But I mean, I think, I think if you're starting out with a liberal democracy saying, okay, uh, you're going to have to give up the rights that you're already accustomed to, but you know, don't worry, it's going to, it's going to be fine. Right. You mm-hmm. know, like you'll, you know, what you'll get back is so much better. You know, I mean, that's going to be a pretty tough sales pitch. Whereas saying um, these things will become much more meaningful, you know, without, uh, without having a capitalist class, without having concentrated wealth, you know, that, uh, that might sound a lot more, you know, appealing. And, and yeah, I mean, people certainly culturally, but also, you know, pretty universally, but I think especially in, you know, in places where, where it's, it's, these are well-established rights, you know, people care about them. They care about freedom, you know, and, and they have a, and, and I think not speaking to that makes very little sense. So, so I like that, right. I like that you're, mm-hmm. you're on that, uh, on that side of the argument. Um, sure. But you're, uh, but in, um in the article, uh, you're actually you're specifically uh, advocating uh, something that is not a standard view of, uh, of, of of democratic socialists, or you know, almost anybody else. To be fair, you know, it's a it's a view that some uh, philosophers have, uh, which is that we should we shouldn't have um, you know we shouldn't have democracy in the sense of electoral democracy at all. Um, you know, we should have uh, something called sorticians. You want to start out start us off with what that is sure yeah now I'm, I'm curious like how do you have ben have you ever heard of sortition or is this the first time you've come across this, arg- this uh, sort of an argument a little bit i mean like 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 i was kind of vaguely aware that there are people like alex guerrero i think is mm-hmm. a uh, is is an advocate of this uh there's right. a so it's, it's like something i'd like run into just a very little bit and mostly in uh mostly from like academics, not like active political people. Yeah. So, I mean, I can give the basic rundown. Like basically it just means replacing uh, electoral politics with selection by lottery, which would mean you'd get like a random sample of the population and you'd use random sampling methods. And then you would, you would, the makeup of the house of representatives, for example, would be selected by lottery instead of elections. And, um, yeah, it'll, it, it probably sounds uh, like strange and radical to modern ears. Um, but like one thing worth mentioning is um, y- even if you if you go back all the way to Aristotle's politics, you know, he talks about um, how a selection by elections uh, it was associated with oligarchy and selection by lottery is what he associates with democracy, which is kind of interesting. And later on, I can get into more of the reasons uh, for why it's democratic in a way that, that elections aren't uh, in, in sort of like a a moral sense, I suppose, but, um, but yeah, that's the basic idea. Yeah. So, so the two things that you're trying to show in, in the article are that it's, this is compatible with, uh, sort of, you know, those, those more general like, uh, values of philosophical liberalism. Uh, but, uh, but then, and, and those liberal rights that democratic socialists care about, lots of other people care about also, uh, but also that is this is specifically compatible with what socialists want, which and, and I thought this is one of the most interesting parts of the uh, the article. You're uh, uh, you're you're speaking my language. You're citing somebody that I like a lot, who's uh, who's Eric Olin Wright. You know, so uh, so uh, Wright 
uh, talks about like a couple of, of sort of general values that that underlie any kind of socialist projects. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, ways in which I think it's com more compatible. And I, I get into some specifics if you want, but I actually think, you know, if you don't mind, maybe one of the sure. more most useful useful ways of uh, of kind of convincing, of making the sales pitch I find for sortition is actually to go through the arguments for how, for how bad electoral democracy is. Because mm -hmm. I feel like if we can get that on the table first, I think that it can soften people's ears a little bit more to like to sortition. Um, so I, I, I don't know if um, Kale wants to put up, I think I, I just have like two little slides. Yeah, this one, and I can go through some of the reasons. Sure. Um, let's, let's do it. All right, awesome. So, um, so since most elected politicians depend on fundraising, they're incentivized to seek out people who can fund their reelection campaigns. This obviously gives private enterprise and corporate donors a disproportionate influence on the uh, electoral pro uh, process. And also worse still, I would argue, you know, if you look at what a lot of this campaign money is spent on, right, it's not really spent to inform the public, but to distort truths by creating these sort of partisan propaganda, uh, you know, with um, re-election ads and stuff. It creates this whole kind of culture of oppositional propaganda. Um, and then another reason is if you look at <clears throat> the empirical evidence, um, you can see that policy preferences of ordinary Americans has almost no effect on policy outcomes um, in an electoral um, context, especially when you compare that to elite interests. Um, then if you go, another problem with electoral politics is that is the way it turns politics into like a partisan spectacle, you know, we almost a team sport, I would say. So rather than functioning as an exercise in working together through social empowerment, electoral politics turns the public against itself. And worse still, I would say the media that reports on electoral politics emphasizes this horse race aspect, right? So um, and the, as well as a politics of personality over substantive policy discussion. So the, and the media even tends to systematically ignore political messages that do not fit into its left, right horse race dichotomy, favoring polarized sensationalism. And I think a really good example of a book that, uh, you know, shows this, this, um, this dynamic is Matt Taibbi's hate Inc. If any of you have read mm -hmm. it, 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 I think it, it very persuasively explains what I'm talking about here. And I think this ultimately just further entrenches a political and cultural dichotomy in the public. And I think this depends on electoral politics. Um, and then electoral politics also tends to attract the wrong kinds of people. So at its worst, I think electoral politics attracts people who are motivated more by their ego or personal enrichment than social empowerment. And more than that, I think the entire incentive structure can lead otherwise well-meaning people toward behavior contrary to solidarity or contrary to things that socialists would be interested in. Uh, the influence of lobbyists, special interests, um, are based on a need to continually fundraise for future campaigns, as I mentioned earlier. And this obviously is going to have a big, uh, a big influence on how the agenda is set in politics. Um, another perverse incentive is that electoral poll is a uh, party discipline, right? So because uh, often party discipline is prioritized over problem solving. Um, so you can imagine a group of legis legislators, right? Trying to reduce crime, for example, um, even, even if an idea for solving the problem has strong empirical support and might be accepted by lots of legislators, if the solution is contrary to party ideology or discipline uh, and the party discipline, the initiative won't be adopted. And I think, um, you know, party discipline and ideological attachment can also prevent creative problem solving. So because of the way it narrows the scope of the kinds of solutions that are acceptable, 
And I think, you know, the worst example of party discipline is, you know, sometimes you have even have cases in American politics where, you know, both sides and actually hear journalists talk about this, how they can they'll talk to individual legislators like on the Republican or Democratic side. And privately, they'll say that they know this is a good idea. Um, but they're incentivized because of the way um, the way uh, electoral politics works. They're incentivized to block legislation because they don't want to give their opponent an, uh, to, uh, a political victory. Right. So rather than being incentivized to develop solutions to enhance social empowerment, I think party and ideological loyalty incentivize politicians to waste time and grandstand in order to appear favorable and make the opposing party look bad. And I think that's just an environment that pretty much destroys or, or heavily you know, um, damages the possibility for um, solidarity. And I think, you know, just those, th those are the main arguments. But I would also just mention, you know, from a left perspective, I think we often like to blame or at least link capitalism and neoliberalism to a kind of cultural impact that makes solidarity, makes socialist value, values difficult. Right? I think critical theorists and others talk about how competitiveness and individualism of neoliberalism right, turns us against each other. And um, I guess I would argue that I think maybe we don't pay enough attention to also the possibility that our electoral system might be having a similar impact, right? I think it, we can see the structure might be um, having a kind of impact on the culture such that it also makes uh, solidarity difficult in a similar way to maybe like the competitiveness of neoliberalism would. So that's basically my condemnation of, of electoral politics. Yeah. So yeah, this, this is super interesting. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot that, could be said here uh like um which some of which is just um like thing like some of which are, are objections you could maybe make uh, about especially to the uh the democraticness of it uh if you know if you if part of the uh, the value of this right so they're you know you you argue in the uh, the piece citing uh, eric Olin right you know that the uh, the basic you know those two basic socialist values right talks about are are basically um i don't remember the terms he uses but you know but uh wanting to have everybody's needs met uh and you know and and, and have sort of adequately provide this you know this this good you know egalitarian you know good standard of life for everybody uh and then the other one is uh social empowerment that uh, yeah that, that you th you know think that um you know that if you think that socialism isn't just uh, another term for like statism, you know that the uh, that this, this the state controls everything. That like really, uh, you know, socialism, right, is, is is about you know the empowerment of society as as a as a whole, right? So some form of collective, you know, social ownership of the economy, maybe, and 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 you know, social control of the the state, right? I mean that it's state ownership is socialist to the extent that the the state. Is, uh, is is socially uh, socially controlled, uh, so all of that right is is about democracy, and and you could raise questions. So so one like obvious kind of starter question about this is all right. Like if we're imagining something like the uh, the you know House of Representatives as it currently exists, but it's 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 chosen by lot uh, rather than. Um, rather than chosen by, by election, that's uh, 435 uh, people out of uh, what's like 300 million, something like that in the, uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, that's a pretty small sample size. Mm. Uh, and, 
if you think about like studies uh, and, you know, polls and stuff, I mean, like the, uh, you know, as the, uh, you know, Nate Silver is a, uh, is, is a deeply annoying centrist pundit, but, you know, but I mean like the sort of good part of, of what he always did was, was trying to get people to look, don't pay too much attention to any one poll, you know, cause, cause this, the, like there, there could be all kinds of weird flukes, right. You know, like you're using random sampling methods, but you're still going to get weird flukes. Or you think about like studies that like, all of the sort of like bad pop science journalism that's that's like oh new study shows that you know coffee cures cancer plants can think you know whatever like it's it's always based on some weird correlation that shows up in you know one particular study but probably won't be replicated uh in the uh in the next one uh so if somebody if you have people who have to um who have to win an election you know that the uh, the, the electorate as a whole is deciding who uh, who gets to make decisions, uh, then even though, as you said, you know, we live in a society that's that's you know deeply uh, economically hierarchical, and most of us don't exert very much political influence, and our policy preferences aren't really translated anyway. But you know, in in you know, we'd hope right that that would be a bar against things that you know most people don't want uh, happening. Whereas if you have selection by, by lot, I mean, man, you know, I, 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 if the, uh, if, if this particular weird sample that you get in any particular lot happens to, to trend in a direction that I really don't like, I mean, are we going to invade Canada? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that's definitely like a legitimate concern. I think like one, one of the things that is talked about in the literature is like, you might want to increase the size to get like a larger sample. So that's one thing, like I agree 435 out of, you know, uh, and if you look most, I think a lot of uh, opinion surveys usually rely on like around a thousand to 2000. I mean, I don't know if we would go that high, but I guess there, there could be, um, reason to definitely do that. But I also think you're touching on one of the basically main uh, um, objections to sortition, which is uh, which I think I lay out in the paper. There's two main ones. And one of them is like the concern about competence, which it seems like you're, you know, what happens if we get this, this, um, this, this group of electors who have these really like terrible opinions and want to do, uh, you know, invade Canada, or, you know, which is where I am. So I hope that doesn't happen. But, um, you know, and I think like one thing to remember is that, you know, we would assume that um, people who are selected would have a bunch of resources um, in front of them to make, like, they would have all the tools to educate themselves. Like, even now, if you think about congressmen, right, they have a staff, right? They have a whole bunch of staff that researches for them. Um, of course, you're right um, that, like, our worry is that we're going to get, a, like, a sample size that maybe, like, disproportionately favors, like, QAnon believers or something like that. I suppose that might be possible. But, um, you know, there are some interesting examples, I guess I can appeal to like the few empirical examples of where these experiments have been tried. And I think um, people often expect, oh, if you're going to get a random sample, they're just going to stick to their status quo bias. But I think one of the interesting things in the limited examples and the one that comes to mind is in the province of British Columbia in Canada, they had a like um, a, 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 a citizens assembly selected by lottery to think about electoral reform in, in British Columbia. And, you know, going in there uh, initially when they like uh, surveyed the members who were selected, like, do you want to keep the first past the post system or switch? Um, You know, there's a quite a high status quo bias where they're like, well, I don't know what single transferable vote is. I don't know what mixed member proportional is. And they're like, well, I don't want to switch it. Right. But, you know, the whole process, the point of it was that they were presented with experts who explained the pros and cons, how each electoral system worked, what the benefits. And by the end of it, it was like 90 percent of the assembly like voted for something that they, you know, that they didn't even understand what it was at first. 
so yeah, I mean, does that address every concern? But I think at least it gives us um, some hope that that given um, a circumstance where people are confronted with um, with the with the material to deliberate. And, you know, just as a quick aside, too, I think one of the problems with contemporary politics is like we have people who are voting who don't actually have the time to uh, to deliberate uh, on like what the policy issues are because they have to live a life. And I guess like these kinds of experiments would say, you know, take citizens and actually give them the time to 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 be confronted with the information and the facts and the pros and cons. And we would have some some hope that maybe they would come to a decision. And at least that example and there's a couple others do show that that does seem to occur at least. You're muted, by the way. One, um, like one bigger question that that kept kind of hitting me as as I was reading your your essay about this is whether we're like considering sortition as a element of like a um, you know future socialist society where you know where where, where things work very differently in, in general. Uh, and and that you know and, and that as part of that sweeping you know uh, social uh, social change, there might be things that are currently you know decided by election that could decide by sortition, or there are things that are neither decided by election nor sortition, but you know but but could be decided by sortition. Uh, there's a I remember um, couldn't find in time for this discussion, but I remember. Uh, there's a clip I saw a long time ago from Richard Wolf, who's who's describing, you know, uh, you know, worker self-directed enterprises, and he was using the example of a restaurant. I don't remember how many people worked there, and what he's describing is essentially a, a system where people like alternate, you know, you know, uh, like weeks, you know, about about when they, they get to make uh, make decisions. So it's the same, you know, approximate principle at least to sortition, even if it's not a random lottery. Uh, but is it that right, or is it something that, if we had it, would make it easier to to you know like get the outcomes we want? In other words, like are we imagining everything else being the way it is now and sortition being layered on top of that? Because if so, uh, there's like you know we could kind of go through some of the stuff in uh, in that slide and and think well how much of this stuff. Um, would be, um, you know, would be made, uh, you know, made better, right? So, um, you know, it's certainly if you think about the, um, uh, you know, well, I mean, I, th I think party discipline is a uh, is a good thing if you have a party that's trying to uh, that's probably trying to change things. But, you know, if you think about something like uh, like lobbying, uh, there's, you know, I mean, there is a concern that you could have that lobbying would actually be more. Over a uh, of of a problem uh, under under the system because, you know, in your example from from British Columbia, uh, the the decisions of this assembly were were non-binding. You know, so there'd be much less of an incentive for lobbyists to bother trying to influence it. Uh, but uh, and and people were sort of being presented with uh, with neutral uh, experts. But um, you know, part of the one of the reason that you know that lobbyists, you know, exercise the influence they do. Some of it is because the implied threat or promise of campaign donations or withdrawing it, of course. Right. And, and that for sure, this would help with, but like also some of it is just that, you know, people have limited time to, to research things, which I think is going to be true uh, regardless 
of of whether you have election or, or sortition, right? Because if we're not talking about an assembly that's tasked with deciding one specific thing, but with uh, with day to day governing in general, right? You know, people have tons of issues on their plate; they don't have that much time to think about it. Uh, and so, if people who have researched a lot can tell them a certain kind of story, right? You know, that's that's going to be very influential. And if the people that you're starting with are not politicians who have pre-existing strong preferences on some policy issues they ran on and whatnot. They're people who may have never thought about this stuff before they got there. And then, you know, lobbyist shows up and, uh, and they, they have a, and they have a story to tell you and, you know, and, and, and a case to be a case to be made, then you could end up relying on them even more than an elected politician might. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think that's always possible, right, to influence people regardless of the sort of like decision situation they're confronted with. But I guess I would say it's, it does seem to me at least that the most salient path for influence, right, is like the lobbying and also the fact that there's an incentive to be reelected and to move up in the party. Like, you know, the thing that I would have in mind would be where you would never be able to serve again, right? Like if you're randomly selected. Um, you serve that one term and then there's no possibility that you can ever be. So I guess it's like, aside from bribery, it's like, what are they, which is a concern in any context, right? Regardless of what, sure, what system sure, you have. Um, um, and, but like, so I guess it's like, to me, it just seems like all the money, the lobbying, like all of that, I think depends like the lobby industry that, uh, what is it? K street in, in Washington DC. Right. I think that's the, what it's called. Um, that I think that industry largely depends on the reelection incentive. I think. And like, I think the beauty of, uh, of, of a sortition is that you take away that, that incentive. Yeah. I mean, really strict uh, term limits might also, but uh, I, I wonder, you know, you mentioned Matt Taibbi's book, Hate Inc., uh, which is, yeah, which is a book that I like quite a bit. You know, I mean, I, I think that that's something that, um, you know, what, what Taibbi is talking about in that book is something that's maybe not part of some leftist media critique, but it should be right. Like, I mean, they might resist it because it sounds a little bit too much like, uh, I don't know, you know, both sidesism or civility mm. mongering or something like that. But like, really, what he's describing uh, is the the way. I mean, uh, Taibbi, as as he showed in some of what he's written about Marcuse and stuff, is very much not a Marxist. But like, in a way, he is describing, you know, a really, you know, like even really like a, this is like that line right about the how. Uh, even vulgar Marxism gets like 90% of the truth, right? Right. You know, that they have like a sort of like the way that, you know, material base, the way that, you know, the economics of the media, uh, you know, ends up informing the, uh, the ideological, uh, you know, superstructure in like a really striking immediate way, which is that traditional media has collapsed, uh, quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, and, um, you know, tons of people still watch it, but, you know, it's, it has collapsed quite a bit. Uh, the, uh, the most watched, you know, Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson, you know, like we'll still get like a hilariously tiny fraction of the percentage of TV viewers who are like watching Walter Cronkite talk about Vietnam. Uh, and the market incentive is to pander to whatever audience that you have left, whether it's the Maddow thing talking about Russia all the time or, you know, Tucker Carlson scaring old people in the Fox News way. Uh, and, and then, you know, you end up just getting people to speak in bubble, you know, to speak into the bubbles and you end up, uh, you know, a lot of the, the market model ends up being about whipping up, uh, viewers to, to hate other ordinary people who, who subscribe to the opposite tribe. And I think that's all real and disturbing, but none of that stuff particularly has to do with electoral democracy. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if it would really be that different given sortition. And in fact, 
I don't know, man. I, I can kind of imagine um, like, uh, you know, like, like Tucker Carlson doing segments on like some random guy uh, whose, uh, whose, whose turn it was to, uh, you know, who, who got the, uh, who got Congress duty uh, and, uh, and, and voted in some way that, you know, that pissed people off and like whipping up people to hate this random guy and to try to get him fired and, you know, and all that stuff. I mean, that could be, uh, you know, that, that, that could be, you know, that could be an even worse nightmare in some ways. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Uh, That, that could, that could potentially be really bad, but I suppose I think that the, you know, you're right that it's not directly related to, um, to electoral democracy, but I think party politics maps on um, to sort of like cultural divides, at least and like right now. So I think, you know, it's true that it wouldn't be fully insulated, but I do think there's at least some reason to think that, um, when the incentives of these members is not uh, re-election, that they are somewhat insulated from what's going on outside of them, and you do see that right in in these in some of these empirical examples, where even though like the public, you know, in in the case of electoral uh, reform in British Columbia, which I agree is not a hot button cultural issue, but you know, the 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 divide between the opinion of the of the people in the chamber versus outside was very different because the people in the chamber actually had time to deliberate and think about that issue, and I think. There's some reason to think that, like, um, you know, at, at least th- there would be some insulation. You're like, yeah, like Tucker Carlson could do all he wants, but like, what's the incentive for that member to bend to what Tucker Carlson's saying versus, at least versus, the incentive of right now somebody who's trying to maintain this idea that they're a loyal Republican or that they're a Trump Republican? I just think there's a lot more paths right now for this kind of like really toxic influence to take place. And, you know, I'll admit, I don't think um, sorticians guaranteed, you know, to to solve these problems. But, but I guess the way I tend to look at it is that, you know, at least, and it's part of the reason why I like to start with why electoral politics is so bad, because I feel like we have to keep that in, in front of our mind to be like, well, how much worse would this be compared to that? And I guess to me, it just seems like there's a lot more reasons for thinking that it would be better than worse, which I could go through too. I still have some other reasons as well. Um, yeah. Well, uh, we, uh, we might have to uh, have to save that part okay. for, uh, for the, uh, for the post game. Um, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot like, yeah, I think you, I think you make a, a good case. I'm not, I'm not sure how convinced I am, but I think you make a good case. Uh, I, Fair. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I think there's also a question about what the uh, conclusion is is here, right? Like, just just that we we sort of, um, you know, sortition even combined with this kind of system that we already otherwise have would be desirable. Uh, that you know, like, you know, especially if you're right, I have a hard time imagining it being achieved without uh, with without altering a lot of the rest of, of the stuff too. Uh, yeah. But uh, but anyway, we can get more into uh, that in the uh, in the post game. Uh, we're we're also going to talk about um, you know my good friend and uh, comrade Bhaskar Sankara's uh, article in uh, in the uh, the Guardian. Uh, if we want to uh, fight the climate crisis, we must embrace uh, nuclear power, uh, which uh, is um, you know which uh, yeah we'll get into that uh, in uh, in the post game. Uh, as a uh, as a reminder, uh, we have uh, it's um, 
the link to that has already been uh, been posted uh, for uh, for patrons. Uh, speaking of patrons, uh, the Rick Perlstein uh, interview uh, drops on uh, on Thursday, so uh, so check that out. Uh, if you want to get the post game, you want to get those patron episodes uh, every Thursday. Uh, you want to get those uh, monthly Soprano episodes, Sopranos uh, recap episodes before everybody else does. Uh, access to the Discord, etc., etc., etc. Good stuff, and also to uh, to um, support uh, the work we do in the show. Uh, uh, so always, uh, always very, very much appreciated. Uh, but with that, I think uh, we'll cut it off here uh, for uh, for today, and uh, go to the post game.